You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. Now, the Commission of Investigation into Mother and Baby Homes submits its final report today after five years of work. The report is more than 4,000 pages long. It won't be published until it's been reviewed by Children's Minister Roderick O'Gorman, the Attorney General and Government Departments. The Taoiseach has said the intention is to publish the report as soon as possible. It includes the testimonies of people who lived and worked in 14 mother and baby homes and four county homes between the 1920s and the 1990s. The Commission itself dissolves at the end of February next year. Our religious and social affairs correspondent, Alva Keneally, has this report on how it all began. We care about the children here on these grounds and we want to show them that we care. So we came here in numbers to show them. It's something that happened in the area that shouldn't have happened. And it brought a lot of sadness to the area. It's a legacy which has cast a shadow over the Irish state for decades. A local historian, Catherine Corliss, discovered death certificates for almost 800 infants, but no burial records, at a mother and baby home in Tume County, Galway, which was run by the Bon Secours sisters. It spurred the government into action in 2014. I sought approval from Cabinet this morning for the formal setting up of a Commission of Investigation. The following year, the Commission of Investigation, consisting of three members and led by Judge Yvonne Murphy, was established. It was tasked with investigating and reporting on what occurred in 18 institutions across the country, including TUM. Its deadline, February 2018. The Commission have the power to investigate and compel both people and documentation. Clearly arising out of that, there might be information that could be of interest to the Gardaí. And so the Commission got to work, calling on those who were resident in or who worked in any of the mother and baby homes or county homes subject to the investigation. Politically, the Department of Children had a new minister in charge. I've met the Commission a couple of times now. Uh, They've identified that Many, many more people have come forward uh, to give evidence to the Confidential Committee and they've made every effort to ensure that they will hear anyone who wants to come. In 2017, the Commission announced that multiple human remains aged between 35 weeks and three years had been found in an underground structure in Tume. The remains dated from the time the mother and baby home was in operation. And the commission said the structure in which they were found appeared to be a sewage tank, but it said it couldn't determine if it was ever used for that purpose. The Taoiseach at the time, Enda Kenny, gave this reaction. No nuns broke into our homes to kidnap our children. We gave them up to what we convinced ourselves was the nuns' care. We gave them up maybe to spare them the savagery of gossip. The wink and the elbow language of delight in which the holier-than-thous were particularly fluent. Having been granted an extension to its deadline, the Commission published its fifth interim report in 2019. It examined burial practices in mother and baby homes. It showed 900 children had died in the Bessborough home in Cork, but just 64 burial locations were identified. The coalition of mother and baby home survivors were devastated. What has being shocking is the fact that Bespera Angel's plot has effectively disappeared on us. We thought as a community we knew exactly where it was and nobody knows where 
between seven and 900 babies and probably more are buried. In its seventh interim report published this year, the Commission declared that its final report would go to the Minister on October the 30th. There was also the issue of a database that it had in its possession, which it viewed as valuable. Thank you. And then yeah, another much, change of Minister. Um, it's not my desire to act in this way. Minister Roderick O'Gorman brought urgent legislation through the Oireachtas last week to get the database transferred to Tusla, which led to wider concerns about survivors getting access to their own information from the database and the wider archive. The haste is motivated solely by the need to get this legislation passed by the 30th of October, which is the deadline for the Commission of Inquiry. This caused hurt and trauma for former residents and people born in the homes who have faced innumerable obstacles in tracing their pasts, as Noelle Brown explains. I mean, I began tracing my birth family um, in 2002 uh, and have only finished my story now with no help from a state agency, Tusla, unfortunately. Um, it was an, a very, very long, difficult experience. So I went down the DNA route and found birth family within six weeks. Uh, to be told that my birth father had died in 2016. So I don't know what you do with that anger and hurt, you know. The only thing I've done is turn it into activism because I feel if there are people who can't speak out, I can and lose the shame and the stigma but, and empower myself and do something about it. And that's why I've been fighting and that's why all people are fighting. Like Noelle, Blaheen Hurley was born in the Bessborough mother and baby home in Cork and she's looking for a birth cert. I always had two documents, one a very short cert that said basically that I was born. It also said that I was born in Dublin. And when you're from Cork, that's a bit of a bugbear because you know you weren't. <laughs> um, uh, because all babies at that time there who were adopted, their, their births were registered centrally in Dublin. And it's, it's, it's also been a, a, re- a reminder to me that I'm a second class citizen. I don't have the same rights as everybody else in this country. I can't go to an office and ask for a, a copy of my birth cert and somebody just ream it out and hand it over to me. That's never going to happen. But perhaps there's a glimmer of hope. It's been confirmed that GDPR applies to the archive and the database that will arrive in the Minister's office today. And even though many more steps have yet to be taken, the country has moved closer in enabling those who are simply trying to find out about where they've come from to do so. That report from Alva Keneally. You're welcome back to Morning Ireland. And as we heard earlier, a candlelit vigil was held last night to remember a mother and her two young children who were found dead in a house in Dublin yesterday. Residents of Llewellyn Court in Rathfarnham in South Dublin expressed their grief and shock at the tragedy and described how difficult it was to explain what had happened to their own children. Our reporter Samantha Libreri was at last night's vigil. She spoke to some of those who were there. There's a little boy and a little girl here involved and that little boy is only my daughter's age. It's, you know, it's just terrific. Like, And for the neighbourhood, we're a very close community here. We do an awful lot around here in this little area, say with the fairy garden and, and, and the, the new uh, bench that we've uh, put in. And um, as I say, we've neighbourhood watch, we've everything around here. So just, just to show your support in any little way, because there's not much you can actually do just to just to show it out there that we are a community and we are thinking of this whole family at this horrible, horrible time. Yeah, I just came here to show solidarity. Uh, it's absolutely devastating what's happened today in Llewellyn. Uh, it's great to see the residents come together here and united. Shocked. 
we never thought it would happen in our own estate, but it does so. Over 40 years in this estate and I never ever seen anything like this before in this estate because it was always a quiet residential estate and everybody looked out for everybody. I think we're all still absolutely shocked. Um, most of us didn't know the family, they seemed to be a very private family. I think it's just the thought of particularly two children losing their life, it's, um, it's just, I don't have the words, I can't. And Samantha joins me now and shock is the word there from the residents summing up the reaction to these unfolding events, Samantha. That's right, Mary. This house is nestled in a small, quiet cul-de-sac in Llewellyn Court, which is an estate on the border of Rathfarnham and Ballantyre in South Dublin. It's just a few minutes from Marley Park. And the neighbours say the estate is about 40 years old and they described it as a close and settled community. It was mid-term break yesterday and there were an awful lot of young children out playing in the field. There was Halloween decorations in gardens and windows, a very normal picture there. And as, as you heard them mention there, they were very proud to show us the bench they've recently installed for the older people living there in a fairy garden for younger residents and it was at this location last night that they held that candlelit vigil to remember the mother and the two children who lost their lives. Neighbours said they were stunned and devastated at what happened and as you heard them say they didn't they admitted they didn't really know the family very well. The woman, her partner and two young children had been living there for about a year and it's understood the couple moved to Ireland from outside of Europe some years ago. They were described as private people who kept to themselves and the children attended the local primary school. And how did Gardy make this discovery yesterday? Well, it was those neighbours who became concerned when they hadn't seen the family in some time. So they contacted Gardaí and Gardaí called to the home just before midday yesterday, but they got no response. So they eventually forced entry to the property and there they discovered the bodies of the 37-year-old mother, her 11-year-old daughter and her six-year-old son. Now, the scene was immediately preserved and designated a crime scene and the state pathologist was notified and a technical examination was carried out. And very quickly after the discovery, Gardaí said, said they were treating the deaths as unexplained. Now, it's understood they're pursuing a number of lines of inquiry. They're carrying out house-to-house interviews with those neighbours to establish the movements of the family in recent days. And they're also speaking to friends and family of the deceased. Now, Gardaí have been in contact with the partner of the woman and the father of the children. Detectives spoke to the man who's said to be distressed and he's been given access to medical treatment. Do we know where this investigation is going now? Well, the state pathologist attended the scene yesterday and last night the bodies were removed from their home and a post-mortem is due to be carried out today on the bodies of the mother and her two young children. Nagarthi say the results will determine the course of this investigation, which was described to me as a complex and very sensitive investigation. But it has been allocated at the moment all the resources of a murder investigation. We expect to hear more from Garthi later today. But yesterday, Garthi also took the unusual move of appealing to the public not to share comments about this case on social media. They say comments began circulating very soon after the incident came to light yesterday and they described these comments as uninformed and they also said they were extremely unhelpful to this criminal investigation. For now, Samantha Library, thank you. 
manuscript dating from the late 15th century containing material both from the Irish tradition and contemporary European texts has been donated to University College Cork. It's the Book of Lismore. It was created in Kilbritton and Cork for Finney McCarthy, Lord of Carberry. It had a long and interesting journey and now it's being donated permanently to UCC by the trustees of Chatsworth Settlement and the Duke of Devonshire. He's a cousin of Queen Elizabeth II and whose family owns the Lismore Castle Estate in Waterford. Patrick O'Mahon is Professor of Modern Irish at University College Cork. Patrick, good morning. Yeah, good morning, Alan. Tell us, what is the book and, and what's in it? The book is a, is a large 400-page uh, uh, vellum manuscript written entirely in Irish and uh, its contents are mostly stories, entirely prose, we'll say. Uh, extending from religious materials such as lives of saints and lives of of, uh, continental saints as well and religious texts drawn from continental tradition uh, to native uh, sagas and texts concerning kingship and uh, Cormac MacArt and and, uh, uh, so forth and then on to entertaining tales purely for entertainment such as and finishing up in a crescendo, if you like, with, with Agulvnishen, or a, a, very, a large text, mostly prose with poetry, uh, um, mixed through it, concerning the legends of Fionn McCool. So it's a major, major uh, manuscript, uh, a huge repository of, of native and European tradition, and one that was cre- created uh, specifically as you said, for Finian McCarthy, the Lord of Carberry at Kilbritton, uh, with input from the nearby nearby uh, monastery, Franciscan monastery, uh, Friary of of Tim League. Um, and what it what it is, uh, Gavin, is is it, it what it does? It is it opens the door to us on 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 the uh, intellectual activity in that part of of Cork, in that part of West Cork at the time, and it chimes with so much else that is going on elsewhere in, in the country. So it gives us an, a new angle, if you like, on on um, on uh, scholarly life, on on what okay. was considered as as pleasing to to and entertaining to uh, a noble uh, lord of the Gaelic tradition in in autonomous Ireland. And and where has it been for the last five six hundred years? <coughs> so it was uh, it was written, let's say, for around fourteen eighty. It was uh, thought to have been confiscated during the civil wars, during the wars of, 18, of 1642. Uh, it's, it doesn't appear in the record at all until uh, after that, until 1814, when renovations were being carried out at uh, Lismore Castle in County Waterford, and when it was discovered uh, hidden away, uh, along with the Lismore Crozier, a very uh, famous late 11th century um, Irish Crozier, which is now in the National Museum. And so, and sorry, Lismore Castle then, obviously, was, it was, by that time, it had been in the possession of the Boyles up to the mid-18th century. By that time, it was in the in possession of the Devonshires. And the, and the Devonshires looked after this manuscript, it has to be said, throughout the 19th century before and lent it, uh, loaned it to scholars to work on and allowed scholars access to it. It was transferred to Chatsworth House, the seat of the Duke of Devonshire in Derbyshire, in, in, in um, 1914. And has remained there uh, ever since. It was it was loaned to UCC for an exhibition in 2011, and I was very pleased to be able to digitise the the entire book at that time as part of that exhibition. And now it it, it has been um, donated permanently to UCC. Patrick, whenever we're allowed back into UCC, will we be, will we be able to see it? 
will of course uh, that's one of the I suppose the advantages of of of, of having the book uh, in in Cork now is that it will be there to, to be viewed by by both scholars and by by the public. Um, it is very much if you like a Cork manuscript. It's an Irish manuscript. It is it is eloquent in its contents with regard to the history and, and traditions of the time. And a lot of people, I think, perhaps feel that Irish manuscripts are the Book of Kells and nothing else. But in fact, we have a very strong and very rich uh, learned tradition, scholarly tradition in, in Ireland uh, in the late Middle Ages. And this book is, exemplifies that. And so, yes, of course, it will be available uh, to both public and, let's say, the, the professional academics. Patrick O'Malcolm, thank you very much for speaking to us. That's Patrick speaking to us about the Book of Lismore, which has been which has been permanently donated to UCC. A senior Garda has warned that criminals are monitoring nests for the purpose of poaching wild songbirds, which, according to a report in the Irish Times, can sell for up to €200 a pair. While some bird species can be bred in captivity and sold into the caged bird trade, the poaching of wild species is illegal and can cause significant stress to the animals. Among the birds in demand are bullfinches. Let's take a listen. The sound of bullfinches out in the wild where they belong. Niall Hatch of Birdwatch Ireland joins us on the line. Niall, what's been happening? Well, there's a legitimate cage bird trade, as you said, using captive bred birds. And the law is that birds that have been bred for generations in captivity can be sold as pets and and for the aviary trade. But what's been happening, it seems, in in certain parts of the country is that unscrupulous people have been monitoring the nests of wild birds, like the bullfinch you played there and goldfinches as well, and putting rings on the legs of the chicks. You see, to prove that a bird is captive bred, it has to have a ring put on its leg when it's very, very young, because when it gets older, the the ring wouldn't fit on its leg. Uh, But what they're doing is monitoring these nests it seems, putting the, the, the rings on the legs of the young chicks and then coming back later to collect them from the nest um, when the parents aren't there. And then people who are buying these birds aren't aware that they've been taken from the wild. So it's becoming quite a problem, we think. Mm, why would anybody consider it a good idea to cage these birds? Uh, well, you know, we're, we're a conservation organisation. It's not for us, I suppose, to criticise the cage bird trade if it's done legitimately. I guess some people take pleasure from, from listening to them and watching them in cages. Personally, I would much prefer to see them in the wild where they belong. Uh, but of course, one of the reasons the motivations for, for people to take them from the wild and sell them on like this is because of the money that can be made. As you said, they can reach up, reach up to €200 Euros a pair, so there's quite an incentive there. The birds aren't rare, but is it fair to say that being captured in this way, that it would cause them significant stress? Oh yes, uh, particularly for the bird like the bullfinch, that they're very highly strung, very easily stressed, and actually the, the just the, the the fact of being handled by humans would, would absolutely terrify them, and many of them would would die as a result just from just from sheer stress. We also know with some migratory species that if they are captured and kept in a cage and then are unable to migrate, the stress of not being able to migrate at the right time of year can actually be fatal as well. It's just it's something that you know every cell in their body is screaming at them; they need to head south, and they just can't do that. So. Um, as you said, most of these birds that are being affected aren't rare at the moment, although they were badly affected in, in, in the past because of the cage bird trade. We certainly hope that that won't uh, become a problem for them again. Is there very much of this sort of crime? 
Well, that's a very good question because nobody really knows. Uh, it's really underreported. I think in Ireland uh, as a nation we do very badly when it comes to wildlife crime. We have uh, very good nature protection legislation but very poor enforcement. The National Parks and Wildlife Service is, is very under-resourced and a lot of these crimes just aren't recorded. And it would be very easy for people to do this in, in, a, in a very uh, covert way where nobody would ever notice this happening in, in a remote location. So we think that the number of cases that have been reported are really the tip of the iceberg. Is it fair to say, though, that the main problem remains the poisoning of birds of prey? That is a real scourge in this country, absolutely. As the National Parks and Wildlife Service just last week published their, their latest report um, showcasing a shocking litany of poisonings of birds of prey over the last few years, of 300 recorded. Uh, and uh, we know again that that will be the tip of the iceberg because it's only that the, the birds that are actually found dead, then tested and, and the poisoning is confirmed uh, that actually make it into the reports. Uh, for every one that's found, there must be multiple other birds that are never ever discovered. And this is a real problem. It's, it's get, getting international headlines for Ireland for all the wrong reasons it's seen as barbaric and it's something that absolutely has to stop it's totally illegal and is any progress being made in this area because it's something that we've been talking about for a number of years now I think that the public mood is shifting. I think that people are becoming more aware of the issues around wildlife crime and we're certainly very heartened to see that uh, the government has pledged finally to launch a wildlife crime unit uh, next year. So there'll be proper liaison between uh, the, the National Parks and Wildlife Service and the Gardaí and also um, NGO organisations like Birdwatch Ireland to try and tackle this, these crimes, to try and properly record them and hopefully to bring some prosecutions as well because that's an area where we're sorely lacking. So hopefully the mood is shifting and we'll see a change. Niall Hatch, thank you very much for joining us on Morning Ireland. Niall Hatch there of Birdwatch Ireland with the time coming up to two minutes to nine. Now, should children's clothes be considered essential items? Opposition parties have called for a common sense approach. Last night on Primetime, speaking with Miriam O'Callaghan, Minister of State at the Department of Enterprise, Damien English said that clothes are not essential. Not, no, it's not confusing. I think we've had this discussion on numerous occasions with the retail sector. And to be clear, to try to make it fair, the difference now compared to last March is all those codes can still be purchased. But Minister, are so, sorry, socks, sorry, Mary, on, are socks for your child essential? Yeah, clothes are not essential. Clothes are not essential. Well, our reporter Killian Sherlock joins us now in studio. Killian, what has been the reaction to this, Ben? There's been quite a lot of opposition to this. Um, Earlier on the programme, the education spokesperson for the Social Democrats, Gary Gannon, said the minister let himself down, that children's clothes should be essential and that a lot of people don't have the capacity to shop online. Uh, However, the government is remaining firm on this one. In a statement to this programme, a spokesperson said that there's been no change in their policy on children's clothes and that the goal behind that was to reduce congregations of people. This morning, I was speaking to quite a few people outside the National Maternity Hospital on Hollis Street in Dublin, and the vast majority of them were shocked by the minister's comments. Yeah, I 100% believe that children's clothes are essential. Um, You just don't know when they're going to grow out of something. Um, I have two children myself. Um, My youngest has just grown out of shoes, I know, and I'm in a situation where... I don't quite know what I'm going to do. Um, I suppose I'm going to try and go online, but it's not ideal. I'm not sure if she's one size or two sizes larger. Do you think children's clothes should be essential? 100%. From toddlers to newborns, from children being in school, they'll always going to need new socks, new underwear, new jumpers. 
in these times, it's an absolute disgrace that you can't go into the likes of Tesco's, Dunn's, Dale's, anywhere and buy something off the shelf. I think it's a totally absurd comment. I think particularly in the winter uh, now, people need uh, to be changing their wardrobe over and, and getting warmer clothes. And uh, whether you're a parent buying clothes for a newborn or whether you're uh, stocking up for older children or for yourself or for elderly people, everybody in every demographic is going to need clothes. I do think it's going to take somebody to walk into a shop with no clothes, maybe a mask and a pair of socks. And I think it would make it realise how necessity clothes are. And just a few days ago, a father in Wales tried just that by walking into a supermarket in his underpants after clothing was deemed non-essential. Two days ago, though, the government there added baby clothes to the list of non-essential items. And we're not advocating that. Killian Sherlock, thank you very much indeed for that. Gardaí are continuing to investigate the circumstances leading to the deaths of 59-year-old Tygo Sullivan and his sons 26-year-old Mark and 23-year-old Dermot at the family's farm at Asselis near Canturk, County Cork on Monday in what's being treated as a suspected murder-suicide case. Assistant State Pathologist Margaret Bolster conducted post-mortem examinations on the bodies of Tygo Sullivan and his youngest son yesterday and she's due to conduct one today on the body of Marco Sullivan. The body of Mark O'Sullivan was found in the bedroom of his home. The bodies of Tyg and Dermot O'Sullivan were found in a field on their farm. We can talk now to Ralph Regal of the Irish Independent who is covering this story. Uh, good morning, Ralph. Um, good morning, Evan. In order to find out what happened on Monday, Garthi will be helped by post-mortem examinations and ballistic examinations. Tell us more. Yeah, well, the post-mortem examinations are going to be crucial, uh, Gavin. So two of them have been conducted. The third will take place today. And the indications are that in the case of Tygo Sullivan and Dermot O'Sullivan, there was just a single gunshot in, involved in each case. Now, as you said, those two bodies were found about 600 metres from the farmhouse at Ocelis, which is off the Castle Magnor to Canturk Road in North Cork. And they were found near a ferry fort in a field known as the fort. And two rifles were found uh, adjacent to the two bodies. The body of Marco Sullivan was found in the bedroom of the farmhouse and it is believed that Mark died first. Now, crucial to the post-mortem for the Gardaí um, of, on the body of that of Marco Sullivan is going to be precisely how many gunshots were involved in Mark's death. Now, as well as that then, you have forensic evidence, so the entire house is being searched, and you have ballistic evidence, and the ballistic evidence is going to be critical as well on the basis of telling Gardaí which weapons were used the proximity in which the weapons were used and how many um, rounds were used in each case. There are reports today, and we heard, and it says in the papers, of documents found at the farm. What can you tell us about this? Yeah, that's correct, Gavin. Well, documentation has been found in two separate locations. There was documentation found within the farmhouse. It was legal in nature, and it tends to support the theory that the Guardi are investigating in that this terrible tragedy, which has shocked the entire community, is underpinned by a dispute about land, and particularly about a will and the inheritance of farmland in the area. Now, that was the documentation that was found in the farmhouse, but there was also documentation found in proximity to the bodies of Dermot and Tyg O'Sullivan. That's different in nature, that, that's personal documentation, but it also tends to go towards the toll that was being exacted by this dispute over the inheritance. Ralph, thank you. That's Ralph Regal of the Irish Independent.
And it's one week to election day in the United States. Donald Trump and Joe Biden making their final push for votes. The pandemic hasn't just led to a surge of early voting. It has also entirely changed campaigning. Joe Biden has been addressing smaller public events in front of socially distanced supporters. Donald Trump continues to hold big rallies packed with thousands of people. Our Washington correspondent Brian O'Donovan has been taking a look at the contrasting campaign strategies. Well, I want to thank everybody. Thank you, Gastonia, Gastonia. Donald Trump addressing a rally in North Carolina. Our country will never be a socialist country. It's taking place outside on the tarmac of an airport, but despite COVID-19 restrictions, thousands of people are packed together, many not wearing masks. Big event here, a lot of people packed together. Would you be concerned that maybe this event could be a health risk? you got to live your life. I mean, I do think that, yeah. So you only get one of them, and, and you got to live it. And I think, I believe in God, and I have my faith, and if it's my time, it's my time. If it, You know, I believe, like I said, I want to be cautious, but I think this is important enough to be out here to support him. He's allowed people to have freedom. He's allowed states to have rights to make those decisions for themselves, and I'm pro-freedom, so I like it. He caught the virus himself. Some would say maybe he could have taken more precautions himself. Would you agree with that? Bounced back pretty quickly, so it makes me question some of the validity of the, the hype and hysteria. Donald Trump is behind in all the opinion polls. Would you be afraid that he won't be able to do it on election day? You know what I, I like about opinion polls? They're so wrong so often. Um, you know, I look at the opinion polls, I look at the rallies, okay? I saw the video where Biden had three cars drive by somebody's house in the middle of the street. He's a good businessman, and America is a corporation, and it should be run as such, and so therefore, he's the man for the job. Some media reports suggesting he wasn't that good a businessman, he had a lot of debts, he wasn't paying his taxes. What did you make of those reports? I didn't really care. I didn't really care what he was doing like that. It's what he's done for us so far is what I care about. He's the smartest man we ever had come into the presidential circuit. I mean, anybody can build a skyscraper like that, have his own airplane, a couple of helicopters on his own. He don't need the government money and he ain't taking it. Now, there have been some media reports that he's in financial trouble and the businesses aren't doing that well and he wasn't paying his taxes. What did you make of those reports? I believe they're all lies. I mean, you know, the man ain't going to have a plane and helicopters if he ain't paying taxes. I mean, that's ridiculous. Now, Donald Trump has said that he may not accept the election results and that there could be fraud. What would you say to those concerns? Go for it, brother. Take them down. They've been trying to take you down for three and a half years. Joe Biden's uh, socialism. I don't want to live in a government-controlled society. I want to be able to do things that I want to do without having to ask people from the government questions in order to do so. How y'all doing? My name's Joe Biden. The Democratic candidate also holds campaign rallies, but they look very different to Donald Trump's. Despite the crisis we face, we have an enormous opportunity to build back better. The American people have had the blinders taken off to replace Donald Trump's incentives for companies to ship jobs overseas. Joe Biden's campaign events tend to be smaller with just a handful of socially distanced supporters. He also holds drive-in rallies where attendees remain inside their cars. There's no better, no more appropriate place to hold a drive-in rally than in Motor City, USA. 
Hello, Philadelphia! In recent weeks, former U.S. President Barack Obama has started hitting the campaign trail for Joe Biden. With Joe and Kamala at the helm, you're not going to have to think about the crazy things they said every day. The Biden campaign also organizes small local events. People on the front, remember, go slow. Events like Riding with Biden, where groups of cyclists get together wearing their Joe Biden t-shirts and ride their bikes to show their support for the Democratic candidate. And it looks like overwhelmingly Democrats are coming out right now. Strong, strong return. It's called cast a vote for Biden and get out and vote. Woo! The Biden campaign also holds lots of online events, including several Irish Americans for Biden virtual rallies. We have a voice, make a choice for our country and our children. Build the way to a better day. Has to vote for Biden. There's plenty of music, as well as addresses from prominent Democrats like Congressman Richard Neal. When Speaker Pelosi and I alerted the UK to the idea that there could be no trade agreement, I couldn't have been any happier that Joe Biden said all the right things about the Good Friday Agreement. Music there from Irish Americans for Biden. Virtual rally ending that report from our Washington correspondent, Brian O'Donovan. We're going next to County Antrim, where the area hospital has warned it's operating beyond capacity and has urged people not to attend the emergency department there unless they require urgent attention. The appeals came as a further five COVID-related deaths were confirmed in the north, as well as 727 new cases. Joining us on the line is Wendy McGowan, who's Director of Operations for the Northern Health and Social Care Trust. Wendy, thank you very much indeed for talking to us this morning. Will you tell us about the situation facing the hospital at the moment? Okay, good morning, Rachel. Um, What happened yesterday uh, that invoked that social media post? was that RED consultants had uh, expressed concerns. Uh, there was 27 people in uh, the ED department who required admission to hospital. There was ambulances waiting outside, and they justifiably were concerned in relation uh, to the fact that if someone presented with serious illness or injury, that they, they just had nowhere to trace a picture that we are seeing across Northern Ireland, uh, not only in Antrim Hospital, but that is what we're seeing across the East, the, the, the pressure on the hospital is certainly building and it is so much more complicated because of COVID. And is that pressure still there this morning? Uh, Sadly it is indeed. Um, We had 27 people waiting for beds yesterday afternoon. This morning there is 35 people in the emergency department but 33 of those are actually waiting for beds. Um, So as you can see you know that is just that is a ward uh, that the emergency department are taking care of and there is no capacity in the hospital. That's okay now at this time in the morning, but as we um, as we move into the day and as we get more referrals and as our GP colleagues start to send patients in uh, and ambulances, that pressure will sadly build again as, as the day progresses. When you talk about ill people having to wait in ambulances, that must be very distressing for them and also very distressing for staff. It's incredibly distressing. Um, no one wants to delay anyone in an ambulance. 
Um, ambulances need to be out in the ground caring for patients. Um, they do not need to be sitting outside emergency departments. And in Antrim Hospital, we would pride ourselves at, at giving very high priority to offloading ambulances. But whenever you have so many people in a needy department who, who need to go to a bed, um, and because of the infection control risks currently, and we, like everyone else, have to adhere to social distancing and keeping people safe, uh, there is actually simply nowhere to offload the patients to because the emergency department is so crowded. How does all of this compare to the situation in the spring and, and the last time the numbers were high? Okay, well, it, it is much different because the last time that the numbers were high and our first surge, there was quite a bit of capacity within the hospital. So we were on a full lockdown. Um, there was people, people were almost afraid to come to hospitals and that wasn't necessarily a good thing because obviously we are open for people who need to be there. We want to treat people who are sick. But we had much more capacity in the system. Um, so our attendances at ED were really, really low. And we had much fewer people in hospital. We were going into spring and summer over the last time. This time we are in autumn. Um, we are seeing high, high numbers coming to ED. We're back to our normal numbers. And we all know that the numbers that we had pre-COVID, um, the system was under pressure. So when you add COVID to this, that clearly makes it much more difficult. Mm. And have you had to cancel operations or other treatments because of the rising number of COVID cases? Well, <clears throat> I suppose COVID has complicated things to the to the state that we've actually had we've had to augment some services. So, for example, respiratory services, ICU services have had to be augmented. We've had to create more more jobs in laboratory for testing, cleaning staff. Um, our occupational health department, our infection control department. We've had to set up new services, such as swabbing teams, um, particularly in the community. We have to provide support to our care homes, which is absolutely the right thing to do. Um, and they are doing a fabulous job, but we need to support them to stay safe. We've got restricted visiting, um, so therefore family liaison has had to be set up. And we only have one workforce, and that is being spread quite thinly. So yes, whenever we have to move staff to the areas of greatest need. Um, <clears throat> obviously, that has an impact on the services that we can deliver. Now, we are absolutely committed to continuing our red flag and cancer surgery, um, but there are other elements that have had to be stood, stood back to allow staff to go to the areas of need. Do you have staff then who've had to self-isolate, either because they're sick or because they're waiting for test results? Oh, absolutely. I mean, whenever we have this level of sustained community transmission, our staff are, live in our community as well. Um, they have families of their own. They are equally as vulnerable to contracting or being in contact with COVID in the community. And with track and trace, um, we do have significant numbers of staff self-isolating, and that, again, impacts on our services. Well, listen, Wendy, many thanks indeed for taking the time to talk to us this morning. We do appreciate it. Wendy McGowan there, Director of Operations for the Northern Health and Social Care Trust. And we go to France now, where details are emerging about the young man who's believed to have been the attacker uh, on that attack in the Basilica in Nice yesterday, which left three people dead. And Elizabeth Moutet, the Telegraph columnist, is in Paris and joins us from there. And Elizabeth, what are we learning about the man who's believed to have been the assailant in Nice? 
Uh, good morning, Olia. Uh, what we know, he's a 22-year-old Tunisian who arrived in France perhaps only 12 hours ago, uh, before 12 hours before the, the, the murder itself. He had um, uh, come to Europe uh, via the island of Lampedusa in Italy, where lots of migrants have been uh, 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 gathered. And he... Um, uh, came uh, through uh, the uh, Nice station from Italy. Nice is very close to Italy. Uh, and uh, acquired a, or showed to uh, security cameras, it was obvious that he had, he had a large knife. At 8.29, he went into the church. He first killed a 60-year-old woman who was uh, uh, praying, and then he killed the church warden. He decapitated the first woman, and he attacked a, th a third woman, 44 years old, uh, uh, attacking her with uh, multiple uh, blows with a knife. And uh, she managed to escape outside, which is how people seeing this woman covered in blood uh, realized that the police had to be called almost immediately. And she fled to a cafe, but she died there of her wounds. And meanwhile, the police had arrived, tried to stop him. He uh, then drew out another weapon. They, uh, 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 they shot him and he's now in hospital mm -hmm. between, between life and death. And of course, there were other knife attacks yesterday. This is the third such attack in a month. What's the tension now in France over the right to blaspheme? The, I mean, the tension in France is that people are uh, 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 attacking us. Uh, the right to blaspheme is not something that's being questioned by anyone, including the extreme left, who have been very vocal in the fact that the uh, necessary war against terrorism should not include war against Muslims. Uh, and I think that's that's a consensus for everyone except the extreme right, actually. Um, but the tension is that we are being attacked uh, for something that uh, now is seen so normal than even uh, uh, the U.S. Um, a man at the U.N., a Spanish uh, functionary of the U.N., has just said that everybody should respect everyone, everyone else, as if uh, uh, from the time of the Satanic Verses, when Salman Rushdie wrote his book 25 years ago, to this day, uh, uh, outside France, it seems acceptable to kill people because you've drawn a cartoon. And Elizabeth Moutet, Telegraph columnist in Paris, thank you very much indeed for speaking to us on Morning Ireland. Our first lockdown earlier this year saw a surge in domestic violence. The policing authority called it the second pandemic and this at a time when other crime types were falling. Gardaí say the number of calls for assistance increased by 18% over the last year. Now the force is launching phase three of Operation Fuishev. It's a drive to bring offenders breaching domestic violence legislation before the courts. The head of the Garda National Protective Services Bureau is Detective Chief Superintendent Declan Daly. Chief Superintendent, good morning. Uh, good morning, Mary. Uh, but this is m about more important as it is uh, of, of bringing offenders before the courts. It's about reaching out to victims of, of domestic violence and, and past victims. How do you do all of that and do it uh, at a time of pandemic? Okay, so it, it, there, there are challenges there for certain, but at, it is part of our prioritisation and proactively reaching out to, to vulnerable people, to, to victims of domestic abuse in, in their homes, in the community, to make sure that they're safe and that they're protected. So it's, it's, it's a real priority for us, so we, we, we make it happen. We use our, our resources, our Divisional Protective Service Units, which we've rolled out to all divisions. We use our Victim Services Offices and our national resources in the Cardinal National Protective Services, all combined. 
with colleagues in, in, in the Department of Justice and in um, you know, the NGO sector to make sure that people are protected. There is a particular focus on bringing before the courts people who are breaching um, orders from the courts. H- how, how prevalent is the breach of these orders? Well, it, it, it is a problem. I mean, you know, people who, who are in a domestic abuse situation and who have court orders made against them, and the courts have indicated that you will not do a certain, uh, you know, or go to a certain place like your home. You're, you're, you're prevented from going to your, your house or particular premises. It's important that people respect that uh, court order. And, and we're there to enforce that court order and we will and, and FISHIV is about this phase of FISHIV and Swiss phase 2 is about ensuring that people who have concerns and, and victims who have court orders uh, have gone to the trouble of getting court orders um, that they're enforced and that people are safe in their homes and so it's important that we, we target those so we will, we've will we arrested 107 uh, people in relation to and prosecuted 107 people in relation to Operation FISHIV already uh, throughout this pandemic and uh, today we will start another phase of that where we will concentrate our efforts on those who have breached court orders for domestic abuse. Uh, and what are you learning during the course of lockdown about this increase in, in domestic violence? Because uh, victims can now be living with the, the perpetrator of this violence on a 24-7 basis. Yeah, and I think what's really come out of Operation Visa is the uh, encouragement uh, and the reassurance that people get from us proactively reaching out. I think that is one element that has, has really uh, shone through, and I think that's, that's an area, certainly that's an area that we're going to continue um, you know, into the future. But for somebody who is living I- in a situation like this, an untenable mm. situation at the moment, with no escape, perhaps no way out of their home, maybe no access to, to, to a mobile phone. What is your advice to them? How, how can they make contact with you? Well, it, well it, it's, it's if, 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 they can, if they can get contact with a, with a colleague or a friend, or if, they, if they're out, if they speak, going to a shop, if, they go, if they're out driving. I mean, there is no restriction. There is no restriction on, uh, you know, travel restriction for somebody who, ha- who is a victim of domestic yeah, abuse. And that is important, but or for somebody giving absolutely help to so, so somebody who has a concern out there and they're wondering, well, I need to go, you know, to get counselling or I need to go to a, a refuge centre or I need to go somewhere, you know, um, to, to get myself protection. The travel restrictions don't apply. And if they, if they are stopped at a checkpoint, they can mention and they can say, you know, I'm in difficulties here at home. There are domestic circumstances which require me to, and that will be understood. And these divisional protective services units, they're, they're rolled out now right across the country, are they? Yep. Yeah, there are 28 across the divisions at, at this point in time. OK, Operation Fuinshif, how long does it run for? Uh, until, until it's needed. It will run, okay. it'll, it'll run, it'll run until the pandemic is over and beyond. All right, Detective Chief Superintendent Declan Daly, thank you very much. Now from cyberbullying to selfies, from fake news to social distancing, modern English and Irish is changing. And with those changes comes a new dictionary, the first major English-Irish dictionary in over 60 years, will be officially launched by President Michael D. Higgins later today. It will feature new words like Brexit, Home Office and the aforementioned social distancing. To tell us more is Padraig O'Manin, Chief Editor of the new Concise English-Irish Dictionary. Padraig, good morning. Good morning. Uh, 60 years is a long time to wait for an updated dictionary. How difficult uh, will, or how different, I beg your pardon, will this uh, dictionary be from the, from the last one? Well, obviously, you know, any dictionary really is meant to reflect life as it is when, when the dictionary is published. And, 
you know, the last dictionary which came out in '59 didn't even contain the word computer. So, uh, you know, this new dictionary not alone does it cover modern English, as you know, as spoken in, in Ireland currently, but also modern Irish as spoken, and as well as that, it reflects modern dictionaries. And as much as older dictionaries would have been more formal, would have been more um, maybe conservative in what they covered, whereas all modern dictionaries now are much more democratic. They reflect language as spoken, um, and co- covers both informal and formal language. So it's very different to what was there before. And who decides what the appropriate translation is for a particular word? I mean, you take take a word like selfie, which I think is feigning in in the the new uh, dictionary that you have. Who signs off on a translation? Well, we, we there, there is a national terminology um, committee as well, and we would have been collaborating with them on, on a lot of of terminology, one word terminologies. Um, it would have been more more of a challenge for us to try and, and translate a lot of the informal. Um, or common usage English words because obviously because there was such a gap to the last dictionary we couldn't just take the last one and just add words to it so we had to really rely on, on our translators and people from the various dialects obviously we have three main dialects in Irish and we tried as best as we could to cover the main dialects so we, we really relied on, on the uh, no, the in- instinctive translations of our translating team to, to get most of the informal words in and, and how difficult then was it to get the, the new coronavirus words in? You have words there like social distancing, I suppose banana bread, it's very important these days, and the home office. They all, um, they, they all came into play very late in the day. Well, the, the dictionary was meant to go to print um, around about Easter, around about uh, March, and obviously with the pandemic hitting us at such short notice, we got 24 hours notice to, to close the offices. Um, but in a way, that gave us the extra couple of weeks it took us to, to just to, to, um, to adapt to those circumstances and the fact that the team were scattered as opposed to being on the one, on the one um, location. That gave us a, a chance to add in you know, words such as coronavirus or social distancing. And really, any, any printed dictionary is dated by the latest terms um, that they contain. So at least we can now say that up to around about April or, or May of this year, this dictionary is up to date. Um, but unfortunately, every book um, goes out of date the day it's printed. So it'll be a while before we get you know, even more current terminology on. And that is not Breag Nucht, which is fake news. Uh, Porig O'Manin, uh, Chief Editor of the New Concise English-Irish Dictionary. Thanks for joining us. Now, families around the country will be celebrating a different Halloween this weekend. The trick-or-treating and communal bonfires may be out for this year, but we thought we'd have a look at the many ancient Irish traditions and beliefs around Halloween or Ihahana. And before we hear from Dr. Chris Thormacarhig from the National Folklore Collection, here are a couple of clips to give you just a flavour of, if you like, the traditional Halloween. First, here's Moira Baniogain on the tradition of putting nuts in the fireplace to tell the future. You'd have the hazelnuts. And you know the great, the bars of a great, the big fires we used to have with the, the bars going across mm. the great. You know these, they were, but they were big ones mm. with a hobbit each side. We'd put a, a lot of little nuts along the bars there, you see. You call one nut, you'd say, that's Katie if she was there, we'd say. Another one is Johnny's, another one is Paddy's and Lizzie's and so on along. And the first one that would blow, with the heat of the fire, you see, it would make one move and hit the others. They were supposed to get married. Mm. I, that was it. They were supposed to get married. If one hit the other, one this side hit a girl at the other side. and so on. They used to put them the way a man and a woman, a man and a woman, and so on like that. 
the way you could tell your future for getting married. But if you were really unlucky, you could meet the ghostly puka. And to be safe, you had to be sure to have your slows picked in time, all described here by Patrick Johnson from County Westmeath. There was supposed to be a puka. Did anyone ever see it? Is he in the shape of a dog or what? No. These old people said he's in the shape of an ass, a black ass. And a poker come behind you, and he run his head right in under your two legs, and he hates you back at him. And away he start, and he tear you through bushes, and he tear you through the ditches, and you get all told of him, and he fling you up when he think you had enough of it. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't want too much of that, would you? Just a few of the lovely Halloween memories in the archives of the National Folklore Collection and its director, Dr. Chris Thor McCarhig, is on the line. Good morning, Chris Thor McCarhig. Good morning, Anya. Now, Halloween, of course, it's Iha Hauna in Irish. Why was Samhain such an important time for the Irish? Well, it's it's what we call one of the quarter days of the year, and it's the beginning of the of winter, effectively the dark period of the year. So it's very very old. There's a lot of early references to it in Irish literature, and it was a time when uh, the the dead were uh, believed to be uh, visible. Uh, although that's particularly associated with All Souls Day, which is November 2nd. But at this period of time, when we move from the, the light period of the year into the dark period of the year, there was uh, feasting and celebrations uh, and uh, merrymaking uh, to mark the occasion. So the traditions we will, most of us, have some familiarity with, the ring and the barn brack, children's games like bobbing for apples or coins. What's the significance of all of those? Well, it's, divination is the main uh, idea there, foretelling the future. And it's at high points in the calendar that often divination is associated with. So people would be observing the weather very closely for signs of what the the weather over the coming months would be like during the winter. So if it was very windy, for instance, uh, uh, on the Halloween night, that would be a sign that there would be a lot of storms and bad weather. People would look at the moon as well, and if the moon was very bright, that was a good sign uh, for weather during the winter. But if clouds were moving across, uh, are seen to be moving across the face of the moon, that indicated that there would be storms. Uh, I think we've a blue moon and an awful weather forecast for the weekend, so I don't know <laughs> what that signifies, Christor. Well, watch out tomorrow night and see see how see what it it looks like. Uh, the other part of it, Anya, is is divination about what was in store for us in, in our lives, and this is particularly important for for children. So there was a whole range of of uh, divination. The, the the barn brack is a classic example of it. Uh, that's where you you bake a cake with uh, and you put a ring in it or various other items. Uh, for instance, a coin. Uh, is very common. Uh, if you found the, the ring, you would be the first to be married in that household uh, among the children. If you found the coin, you'd be rich, uh, and so forth. And another nice variation of that is to put out several plates and to put clay in one, water in another, and a ring in the other, and to blindfold one of the children and then to get them to select one of the plates. Mm-hmm. If you selected the water, 
the plate with the water in it, that signified that you would uh, travel abroad. It's a common theme in Ireland, of course, with emigration. Uh, if you selected the clay, that was a sign of an early death. Uh, if, you, if you selected the, the plate with the ring in it, that would be a sign that you'd get married. So there's a whole lot of variations mm-hmm. of this. And there's kind of, is that, what's the origin of tricking or treating? Because in all of that, you know, you can do very well and maybe get the ring and marry the person of your dreams or or you could end up with the clay, which would be a lot more unfortunate. Yes, trick or treating are, uh, when I was a young lad, it it was known as simply uh, the the rhyme you you, uh, announced when you visited a house was help the Halloween party and the apples are nuts. Uh, The trick or treating has, I suppose, is a, a, when Halloween went to the States when it was brought by Irish and indeed Scottish uh, immigrants to the States, it became very popular there. And in the last 40, 50 years, uh, it became known as trick-or-treating. And, and essentially, Anya, it's, it's begging, going from house to house uh, and demanding money. Uh, but it's a very inclusive thing. Everybody looks forward to seeing all, right. uh, all of these people visiting. Well, we wish you a very happy Iha Hauna and thank you for sharing uh, some of those memories uh, with us from the National Folklore Collection, Dr. Christor McCarrig. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.